a new measure, a new level. We ask you for help, Holy Spirit. We know that you've been sent as our helper, as our teacher. Come and teach us, escort us forward in this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, my plan is to do four 12-part series on John 13 to 17. Do 12 weeks and then take a break or whatever, then start another series. And I have four of them in my mind planned out. We may go a bit longer, I don't know. Stuart's gonna be helping me and some others as well. Because I wanna, it's not just I wanna help to do the class, I wanna glean from what they say. I wanna take it because a, a number of us are leaning into this five chapters, John 13 to 17, and we're all beginners in a, in a certain way. I mean, I've studied it over the years, but. I'm still at the very beginning of the beginning. And so even as we endeavor on this class, these four 12-part series and then beyond, I want to encourage you to be patient with yourself. Because these five chapters, they have every phrase. I mean, I've been studying and praying over the phrases for some many months now, hours a day even, not every day, but most days. And these simple phrases, they're beginning to open up, and I'm beginning to see there's a lot more than meets the eye. But of course, it would be true. Because this is the greatest teaching of the greatest teacher in human history. Remember, that's, that's the, the phrase I'm using is this, I want to call it the final frontier in the spirit. Not that we're going to goes so far in it, but is the way God relates to God and invites the human race into it. John 13 to 17 is the most concentrated form or presentation of these truths. I believe it's the ultimate frontier in the spirit. that The way God relates to God and invites his people into that family dynamic that is shared within the Trinity. And the reason I'm, that's noble, that sounds like, wow, that's pretty heavy. My point of saying it is be patient with yourself. Because these aren't things that we're just going to get instantly and just, wow, that, that was easy. We got it. This is the, I believe, the ultimate frontier in the spirit for the human experience. It's captured in these five, uh, five chapters. Again, I want to say, not that... Our teaching here in this time, in this generation, we're going to get to, I don't know how far we're going to get in it, but it is the real, true final frontier. Well, I want to give a start with real brief, the review that we have covered over the last probably eight weeks, the teaching on the Jesus's correction and promises to the Laodicean church. We can look at the correction and we need to, but it's the promises that have really grabbed my attention. He tells them, you know it well. We've gone over it week after week for about six or eight weeks. He tells this church, he shocks them. He goes, you're lukewarm. Revelation 3, verse 16. But I'm going to offer you spiritual gold. It's within reach if you want it. You're lukewarm, but I'm knocking at the door of your heart. And if you open it, I'll give you spiritual food. I'll give you the finest food available in the realm of the Spirit. I will teach you myself. We will sit at the table, open-hearted. 
Paragraph B. I'm capturing these two phrases. There's quite a few promises here in Revelation 3, but that we would acquire spiritual gold and we would receive spiritual food. We would dine with him. That's what I've been locked into, to buy gold. That's the reason we've been repenting. We're not repenting in this 40 days uh, fasting season we've been on with many others around the world. We're not repenting just like staring in the dark just aimlessly. We're repenting. We're shifting our attitudes because we want this gold. We're going for spiritual gold. I have here in paragraph B, and I believe that the clearest definition of that spiritual gold and that spiritual food of the highest quality is found in John 13 to 17, these five chapters. Now, in buying the gold, I said this many times in the last couple, six or eight weeks, we don't earn it because the, the, when Jesus says buy gold, we might think we're earning it because of the word buy. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying invest yourself in a costly way to position yourself for me to give it to you as a gift. But it will be a costly investment to position yourself. Isaiah comments on it, and again, I've covered all this, and then we're going to move on in just a moment. He also presented this idea of buying, not gold, but he called it buying spiritual food, wine and milk. But the way, but then Isaiah tells us the way that you get the spiritual gold, the spiritual milk, the spiritual food is by listening and talking. That's the way you do it. I just want to make it crystal clear. You listen to the word of God and then you come to him in conversation. You talk to him about it. If you listen and talk, you're in the pathway of purchasing, buying the spiritual gold. I'm going to make it just as simple as can be. Now, it's not difficult to grasp that, but it's challenging to do it in a consistent way. It's not confusing to understand what to do. You listen to the word, you read it, you hear it from others, and you say it back to God in conversation. You come to him in a relational, conversational way. When he says, come to me, he doesn't just mean come and serve me. He goes, come and interact with me. And the implication is, talk to me now. Paragraph C, I believe that dining with him, him feeding us, the end of paragraph C, the spiritual food, it's the truths, the promises, the commands highlighted in John 14, 15, 16. Well, it's John 13 too, but John 13, he feeds them a physical meal. Then in John 14 to 17, he feeds them a spiritual meal. And so when Jesus is telling John in the book of Revelation, he says, tell them I'll have a dinner with them. I just, I'm just sure John remembers the last time Jesus had a physical meal, John 13, at the Last Supper, and then John 14 to 17, he fed them a spiritual meal. I'm just assuming John says, oh, I remember very well what it means to have, to sup with you, to dine with you. Paragraph D this was so encouraging to me on this pathway of John 13 to 17, though I've been in this mode in, in a kind of an intense way for some many months now, maybe six to nine months, I don't know, in a really intense way. Maybe less, maybe six months. But on March 3rd, 
I had the open vision in my office. I've only had two open visions in, in 50 years of walking with the Lord. And what I mean by an open vision, I'm looking, and right there on the wall, I just see like a movie screen. And you've, I've told it to you several times, but I, I like saying it again. And the door opens, the, a door, and this room filled with golden light. And I was praying, we're in this 40-day fast as, as a family, as a fellowship, and I'm saying, Lord, I want to do this Revelation 3. I want to open the door of my heart in a greater way. I want our spiritual family to open the door of our heart to you in a greater way. Help us, Lord. And as I was just, just, just kind of whispering those prayers to the Lord, this door appears. I mean, like technicolor. I mean, gold, a door opens and golden light. The light doesn't shine on me. It doesn't come out and shine in the room. But I'm looking into the realm of his glory. And the message I have written here of this vision was, as my people open the door of their heart to me, I will open the door of my glory to them. If we open the door of our heart, Revelation 3.20, three verses later, he opens the door of his glory in chapter 4, verse 1. It's the same conversation. Paragraph E. In this first session which I'm titling it, Why John 13 to 17 is so important in this hour of, of human history, church history, human history, they call it human history. It is so important. So paragraph E, the point of this first session is to alert people to the significance of John 13 to 17. Many commentators refer to this as the upper room discourse. Discourse is kind of a strange word. I don't know that we ever use the word discourse but it's a very popular designation of these five chapters because it's in the upper room. It's at the Last Supper. It's the very upper room where on the day of Pentecost, the power of God fell on him. At the Last Supper, it's at the Passover Seder. Some commentators call this Jesus's farewell message. So if you study this, and I trust you'll study this for years from many different sources. I'm reading it from a number of different sources. I, I want to... I want to reap from the anointing, the teaching anointing on others through history. Because there's just morsels of gold, all through, or bits of nuggets of gold, morsels would be food, of spiritual food, all through church history on these chapters. But not so many up to now have gone really deep, at least in, as far as my research. You know, some people have uh, 10, 20 pages, some 30, 40 pages on it, and, but there's such a volume of spiritual gold and spiritual food here. So you might call it the upper room discourse, you might call it Jesus' farewell message, or just John 13 to 17. One of the primary themes, because I, again, the point of this first message is to alert you to how significant these five chapters are. So that when you read them kind of casually, a quick read, you go, eh, that's kind of interesting, I guess. I don't get half of it. I don't know why he said this after he said that, that some of these verses don't seem to connect. But, I, but the good news is they do connect. The verses all connect in a real fluid train of thought. But at a quick read, it doesn't appear that way. It's like the Lord saying, I'm giving you the finest food in the word of God and the, the most excellent gold in the kingdom in these five chapters, and you're not gonna get it at a quick drive-by. You're gonna have... You're going to get it if you're hungry for it. So I think, Lord, unpack it a little bit more. He goes, no, no, you just stay with it a little bit more. I'll unpack it. 
but I'll give to the hungry. And if you can't go without more, I'll give you more. But if you're pretty content with a quick read, well, then I'll bless you with a little bit of insight. So I've set my heart to really go deep on this. I mean, not just this year, but for many years. The primary theme, one of the primary themes, is that God's, is to give God's people insight into how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate. Why does Jesus want us to have insight on how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other? Like, isn't that kind of mystical and out of reach anyway? We're not going to understand fully, but we can understand some, that which the Scripture has revealed. The reason, because the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate, relate is the model and the source of how we relate to God and how we're going to relate to one another in the ultimate uh, hour of history when the body of Christ enters into that John 17, that deep love and unity, even like the Father and the Son have love and unity. Beloved, there is a miracle coming to the body of Christ in those final hours leading up to the Lord's return that is captured in Jesus' prayer in John 17. Human beings, millions of them, are gonna shake off a spirit of slumber and dullness, and they're gonna enter into an encounter of loving God and one another like God loves God. I mean, it's just, it's almost inconceivable to, to grasp John 17, the last seven verses, if you take it at face value. You know, John 17, you'll love as many of the Father love one another. It's like, as you and the Father love it? What? <laughs> We are going to love you and them like, in each other like this? Yes. There is a, an explosion of the glory of God waiting. I mean, that the Lord has planned for the end time church leading up to that final hour to when he appears in the sky. So I believe that this, these three, five chapters are critical to start drinking from it now, eating this spiritual food now, mining for this gold. It also, these five chapters, defines what it means to walk as an overcomer. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus said, for those who overcome, he gave that condition to, you know, promises in the book of Revelation, to those who overcome, well, this is the means. It defines what it means to walk as overcomers. Paragraph F. Now, throughout church history, the subject of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's quite a bit of theological journals and works written around the Trinity, a lot of papers, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 page scholarly papers, and many of them are debating each other. And throughout church history, the subject of the Trinity has been theological Debate. It's almost been reserved to the academics debating about it. I mean, that's a little harsh to say. That's, there's more than that. But most talk and presentation of the Trinity isn't for practical lifestyle. It's about who can figure out the mystery of it, and, and, and scholars kind of debate each other. But I, I have a different approach. And I'm sure some of the scholars do too. I mean, I'm not saying that finally we have the right approach. That's not what I'm saying. Because I believe that millions are going to take this approach. That before Jesus returns, I believe I'm confident the Holy Spirit is going to highlight, I mean by the anointing, the glorious reality of our participation 
and our conversation with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not just going to study it academically, how they talk and relate. We're going to actually participate and enter into it. I believe that's going to be one of the primary emphasis of the Holy Spirit in the final years leading up to the coming of the Lord. And I believe he's whispering it to many people even now. I mean, I remember how just my heart was overjoyed when several months ago when I gave a, a message on it on Sunday morning saying, hey, we've got to go after this and we're going to go after it in the summer in a really intentional way. And I gave a message on it and it was on the internet and Francis Chan emailed me and said, hey, I heard your message. He goes, I watched it. He goes, this is remarkable because the Lord just told me and I shared with my elders, I guess it was some weeks before, I don't know how long before, maybe a month or two, I don't know. He goes, he just told us that these chapters is where he's taking the church. The, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing, us, emphasizing this. He goes, I am blown away that you just said it. Well, I was blown away he just said it. And I believe we're going to hear a number of people that the Lord is just sovereignly going to call them and different journeys, different ways, but he's going to say, I want this to be a primary subject of conversation of the end-time church. Paragraph G. I love saying this statement. It's the greatest teaching given by the greatest teacher in human history. I mean, again, it's worth effort. It's worth looking at it and going, what? And I've done that a bunch in the last six or eight months. And I've studied this over the years a little bit. I've taught on it over the years a little bit. And lots of times I look at how one verse and the next verse seems like Jesus has changed the subject entirely. And I got good news for you. There's continuity and divine logic and how one verse leads to the next. There's many implications to what he's saying. Well, if it is the greatest teaching by the greatest teacher, which it is, my guess, and I'm not trying to be negative on this next thing, sounds negative, but I'm gonna make a positive statement in a moment related to this. My guess, but just a pure guess, I have no way of knowing, that less than 1% of all the believers in church history have ever engaged in these five chapters in a deep and sustained way for years. I mean, I don't know anybody that has. I'm sure there's a couple of guys and gals out there in history that have engaged in these five chapters in a deep and sustained way for years. So my opinion, it's not possible. Just knowing a little bit that I know about God's heart it's not possible that the greatest teaching of the greatest teacher would be engaged by just a few people in human history. The Lord says, no, I got a surprise. I got a plan. I'm going to bring millions into it in the end time church. This teaching will not be passed by, well, 2,000 years, not very many people have gone very deep in it in a sustained way. Have no fear. Don't worry, I have a plan. I'm going to rescue the global body of Christ. I mean, a billion believers, they say, and then a, the billion soul harvest on top of it. And there'll be many falling away, but many coming in. There's going to be a whole lot going on. But he's got a surprise, a glorious surprise, to rescue and liberate and fascinate the end-time church with the deepest things of his heart. Not only these five chapters, but this is the epicenter of it, in my opinion. 
Paragraph H, the long, this is a long neglected gold mine in the Holy Spirit. Let's go on a treasure hunt together. I mean, let's lock in and let's just go after this. I don't mean for a year or two. I mean, let's go after this. Let's turn off some stuff and turn away from some things to make more time to free up the bandwidth of our emotions and just our schedules so we can actually work the muscle and go deeper in these five chapters. But we won't get it on the run. I mean, a little bit. Let's go on this treasure hunt together because we're going to gain a lot more together. And that's one of the reasons I want some others to uh, teach in these, uh, these four 12-part series. And again, well, I'm sure we're not going to end after four 12-part series because I want to glean from them. Because if they're pushing the envelope, so to speak, they're pushing for insight. The Holy Spirit's anointing. He'll just give different personalities and different callings, different turns and twists of the same diamond, different angles of it. Like, wow, I would have never thought of that. I mean, the amazing things I heard about what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea through Dana Candler and Isaac and Stewart and, and I, I mean, Dave Slyker, on and on. I mean, just put the whole list. I heard so many new things, and I've taught on that, those chapters, that chapter, I mean, that passage for years. I learned so much hearing from other people. Well, one of my favorite Old Testament, I mean, Psalms is Psalm 36, 8. I love, David said it. I love this Psalm. I've loved it for years. David prayed, Lord, let us drink from the river of your pleasure. I just love the language. Drink from the river of your pleasure. What? <laughs> and John 13 to 17 is the premier place in the Bible to drink from the river of his pleasure. What's the river of God's pleasure? Well, in one sentence, it's when God reveals God to the human spirit. When God the Holy Spirit reveals the Father and the Son to the human spirit, it's indescribable delight. It's the greatest pleasure available to the human experience when God reveals God to the human spirit. And that happened with David. He goes, oh, I want to drink from the river of your pleasure. Holy Spirit, show me his heart more. Top of page two. <clears throat> Why, I'm a little redundant, Little because I'm repetitious. Because remember, one of my main gifts is repetition. <laughs> Why is John 13 to 17 so important to the end time church? And I believe we're in the early days of that final generation. I believe there's people alive on the earth today. It may be the two-year-olds, I don't know. But I believe there's people alive on the earth today. Maybe it's the 20-year-olds that will see the coming of the Lord in their lifetime. I don't know if I will, but I, and I might, I don't know. But I believe there's people on the earth that are alive. And my point, if that be true, they, there's an urgency to really lock into these five chapters. Millions. This is why I believe it's so important. Millions are going to be equipped by the truths, the promises, the commands, and the authority. There's a number of times in there, and it's not just a promise. You'll speak and you'll say things, and the Father will release them according to your word, according to your prayer. There is an authority, functioning and authority represented in these five chapters. I mean, Jesus walked in that authority, and the four or five times where he said, when you ask, you're going to receive it, even greater works. He says, you're going to operate in authority like I do. Various applications of it. 
I believe that these five chapters describe what it is to be overcomers, walking as the prepared bride. Scripture, Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, the global body of Christ won't be a, you know, a struggling, tripping, stumbling, Laodicean, compromising church. It will be as a prepared bride. But something radical is going to happen between now and then. There's a number of things, positive and negative, that are all going to be combined. But imagine being overcomers as a prepared bride, look at paragraph 8, in context to the most intense persecution of history against the saints, the most intense temptations of the human spirit. The angel Gabriel told Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, he goes, when sin comes to fullness, he's talking about those final hours of years of human history, when sinners and sin comes to fullness beyond any time of history, betrayal will reach an all-time high. It's surprising, alarming, unsettling how much of these five chapters, how many verses Judas's betrayal got into these five chapters. I thought, why are you talking about Judas so much? I mean, it's, we're moved on. Because the Judas story is going to, be untold, going to be told again in the midst of apostolic teams and church leaderships. There will be a betrayal culture. Jesus said in Matthew 24, they will betray one another. Not everybody, because another group will be, they will be loyal and fearless in love to the end. Extravagant. Paragraph B. Some of you are familiar with the encounter I had in 1982, or 38, 39 years ago, where the Lord said he was going to change the understanding and expression of Christianity. And for these 38 plus years, I've had people say, in what way is he going to change the expression of Christianity? And mostly we think of outward expressions. Our meetings will be this way. We won't, you know, we'll meet in homes. The power of God will be present. We'll relate this way. We'll relate that way. And there's truth to all of that. But I believe that the changing of expression is going to be more internal than external. It's because we're going to be interacting into this Trinitarian conversation with the Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to be participating. That's the expression that's going to be most profound. And of course, that will lead to many external changes of the way that we express our life together. Paragraph C. The multifaceted message that Jesus taught here in John 13 to 17. There are many facets to the message. Many facets. But he highlights two reasons he gave this multifaceted message. One reason is that they would have great joy. He says, I'm teaching you all these truths and promises and giving you these commands. I'm teaching you about moving in authority. If you learn these things, you're going to walk in joy. And that's chapter 15. Then chapter 16, verse 1, he says, and... It will keep you from stumbling. In many translations, in the word stumbling, they put the word falling away. So Jesus says, I've given you a multifaceted message in five chapters. And he says it clearly here in verse 15, 11, and 16, 1. I taught you these truths because if you drink a, a deep, if you imbibe them, if you embrace them and walk in them, 
You will actually have joy in the most pressuresome hour of human history in the face of persecution, betrayals, sin exploding in the culture. You will have a joy bigger than that. Beloved, that is way too big, those two statements. You'll have joy and be kept from stumbling. This is way too big to just read these five chapters and move on. I go, if that's really the multifaceted message that will bring joy in the most troublesome hour of human history, there will be a company of people, I mean millions and millions, that will actually have joy. This They will stick out. They will shine like trophies of the grace of God. <clears throat> Paragraph D, well, what are some of the crises that Jesus was help, was teaching this message to the, the apostles, the early apostles? I, I identify seven uh, points of crisis they were facing like right then. And Jesus said, my message in these five chapters will actually empower you in the crisis you're about to hit that you don't even know is about to hit you. But you're not going to just be whisked out of it or I'm just going to have a dream and everything is powerful. You're going to have to interact with me according to these truths. And if you do, you'll have joy in the crisis and you'll be kept from falling away and stumbling. Well, that's an important study to see why the effect this message had on the apostles in that day. But for us today, I believe the crisis they faced and overcame is a foreshadowing of the crisis of the end time church is going to face and overcome. Jesus didn't say these five chapters just so they could overcome in the next few weeks or the next few months and hang in there. He wrote this, I believe, of course, for all of church history, but for the hour where a billion soul harvest would come in and they would be, be transformed into a prepared bride. Crisis number one, Jesus was taken from them in death suddenly. And there will be, even in the end time church, leaders that are deeply connected to other leaders and people, deep family connection, and they'll suddenly be martyred. And it will shake people in various parts of the church. And Jesus said, if the, if the, if the 12 could be sustained when I was taken, then it will work no matter who is taken suddenly. The pain of betrayal. That's one of the most painful realities in, in, in the human experience. A trusted family member, a trusted team member betrays him because he, Judas didn't just betray Jesus. I mean, of course, that's ultimate. He betrayed all of them. I mean, it's a big, big subject. We'll unpack some of this in the weeks to come. The crisis of their personal failure. They denied Jesus after he traveled with him and he raised from the dead and they saw the Mount of Transfigures. Their personal failure, they betrayed him. They caved. That is a crisis. If you love God and you stumble, that is a crisis. Jesus said, I got a way through that. The crisis of their unbelief. I mean, this is a, a, a guess, but when surprising, I mean, dramatic setbacks come, Surprising, dramatic. Nobody saw that coming. And it's a huge setback. They start asking, are the promises even real? Because remember, the idea of the Messiah being killed by sinful men and by, by Jewish and Romans, Romans, pagan Romans killed Messiah. A dead Messiah 
can't be in control. How can we trust a dead Messiah? This, wait, this doesn't work. There will be setbacks. And people will have the crisis of unbelief and they'll get through it. This may not sound like a crisis, but I believe number five is a real one. The crisis of revival. Massive increase of responsibility. A intense workload because of the mass numbers of people coming in with all their needs. And, and when they come in, they don't always come in. They come in happy that they just received salvation, but they come in needy and broken, and they want their stuff now. And I mean, leadership in a spirit of great increase is, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege, but it is a crisis too. It's a, wow, this isn't exactly what I signed up for, I thought. It's true labor. Paragraph six, the crisis, the pain of rejection. I mean, the apostles, they were the, the nation that they loved. They loved their nation. The national leaders put them in prison and killed them. Friends and family members disowned them. Jesus told them that a number of times. Mothers and fathers will turn on children. And this happened to the apostles. Paul said, I lost so many things. The pain of betrayal and the pain of rejection. I don't know which is, is hard, worse. I mean, betrayal is rejection, but they're a bit different. Or the pain of personal failure. Ugh. The pain of unbelief. I don't know if I believe this. Ooh, that's a bad one. I don't like any of these. The pain of Dearly beloved leaders taken suddenly by martyrdom. I don't like that one either. Which one do I like? I think the hard work would be the one I'd pick if I, had to only, if I only had to pick one. It doesn't work that way. Number seven, the physical persecution. Not, not just the spiritual, emotional. I mean, we're talking about beat with rods. I mean, put in prison. And the ancient prisons didn't have air conditioning and Starbucks coffee. Martyrdom, the threat of it. I mean, it was real. Jesus said, these five chapters, I've given you a multifaceted message where you can have joy and avoid falling away and stumbling. If you enter in, when you face these seven, not that there's not more crisis, and this, I just like the number seven, so I stopped looking for more. It's probably 10 or 12 points of crisis. Paragraph F, another reason why it's so important, these seven, five chapters for the end time church. It's the necessary paradigm or perspective or lens to properly interpret God's heart and God's leadership through the 150 chapters of which the primary subject is the end times. Now, everybody's not aware of that, that there are 150 chapters in the Bible, of which the primary subject of those 150 chapters, not the only, but the primary, is what happens in the generation the Lord returns, positive and negative. There's 10 or 15 categories of positive, 10 or 15 positive categories of negative. These 150 chapters, they have so much information, but when we, when we enter into this Trinitarian conversation in a deeper way, and we enter into the truth of these five chapters, it gives us the ability to properly interpret God's heart while these 10 or 15 categories of negative are happening and these 15, 10 or 15 categories of positive are happening. We interpret God's heart right through the lens of these five chapters. I hear a lot of folks over the years teach on end times. 
you know, real positive or real negative, and sometimes a little of each, but to interpret God's heart through the lens of the upper room discourse, John 13 to 17, it makes it critical for the generation the Lord returns. Paragraph G. Well, we got to go deep now. Because if we go deep now, we're going to be in a place to train the leaders, those that will be leaders in 10, 20, and 30 years. I mean, I don't know the time frames. Because some of those folks that will be leaders in 20 and 30 years, they're not born yet. <laughs> they're not even born once yet. <laughs> Others are two and three and four years old. They're children right now. They're three and four years old. They're not thinking about it. But God is saying, I'm going to raise up a generation that goes deep in this. So when they're 15, 20, 25, and 30, they have a whole foundation of understanding that they've been raised in from these five chapters. So it's time to go now. I don't want to wait 10 or 15 more years. I don't want to get lost in another topic. I mean, I want to study other passages of the Bible for sure. I'm going to keep doing that. But I want to keep a focus on these five chapters. Job 26. The statement was, when they saw the glory of God, talking about the glory of God, these are the mere edges of God's ways and his glory. Some of these dramatic things that were described. How small a whisper. About 10 areas of the glory of God are described in Job 26 before it. And, and the statement is, this is a mere whisper. What happens when the thunder of God's glory and power, who's going to understand it then? My point is, I'm studying these chapters and, and I'm catching this phrase. You're only catching the whisper. You're on the outer edges. You need to stay with this because there's the thunder, the power of me thundering the truth into the body of Christ. But I need shepherds and messengers to get a hold of that when I thunder this from heaven, this message. But we start where we start. We start with baby steps and we move forward. I'm trying to win you to the conviction that this is really worth going after for years and to staying with it, even if it's costly and the insight doesn't come quickly or the experience. Top of page three. Now I'm just gonna do a little bit here in page three. The summary of the message, I've said this a couple times already, but I, again, I just, I wanna say it different ways. If I had to just say five chapters, what's one sentence? Well, that's kind of torture. Don't make me say it in one sentence, please. Give me the elevator speech. You know, you got 17 seconds. What does these five chapters talk about? Well, I put it in a sentence or two here. It was, it's not easy. It's how, it's Jesus' message, the summary, is how he related to the Father, but as a man filled with the Spirit. He's not telling us the main message isn't how Jesus as God related to the Father as God. That's in there. That's, that is part of the message, but that's not the main message. The main message is he, as a man filled with the Spirit, related to God, because the point of it is that's how others filled with the Spirit are going to relate to God and to one another. That's the main message in one sentence, if I had to put it there. The union, the interaction, we could say, Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The way they interact reveals the nature, quality, and intensity 
of their love, but even the intensity of their relationship. But the message is, Jesus is saying, the nature, the intensity, the quality of how me, the Father, and the Spirit interact with each other, me as a man filled with the Spirit, a human. I mean, yes, he's fully God, but the, the point of John 14 is, I'm a man doing this. And they're going, he, they go, you still don't get it. This is what you're going to do. I mean, the redeemed are never God. I mean, the gap is, is infinite between the redeemed who are created and finite and the uncreated God who's Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. Paragraph B, our ability to receive the love of God and to return it to God and to others is anchored in how the Trinity relates to one another. That's a strange sentence. I want you to think on that one. I'm gonna say it again. Our ability to receive love at a deeper level from God, our ability to return it to him and to have it overflow to others is anchored in the reality of how God loves God. Because the Father loves the Son, and that's how the Son loves us. The Father loves the Son. That's how we're gonna love the Son, John 17 says. Well, if it's anchored in that reality, I wanna know more about that reality, okay? Okay, we'll teach you more about it. I don't mean me to you. I'm saying the Holy Spirit's saying this. I'll teach you more about it. So it's practical to study the Trinity. It's practical. It's not just a theological debate so we can kind of, you know, cleverly put together some confusing ideas that scholars have debated. The practical is that when we know a little bit of how God relates to God, it's the model and the source of how we relate to God and, and, and others. That's where this new frontier, this final frontier in the Spirit is taking the end-time body of Christ. Paragraph C, John 14. I have verse 10. And I have verse 20. You can read those later. I want to make, here's the point. In, 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 in John 14, verse 10 and verse 20, because these are critical points, but we'll unpack them in, in other sessions. There are four expressions. I don't know if that's the best word. Four expressions, something. I'll come up with a better word later. Of the mutual indwelling. You say, what are you talking about? When you read these, these five chapters and the Gospel of John, number one category, Jesus is in the Father. It's like, okay, what's that mean? There's that dwelling of Jesus in the Father. And we're gonna unpack this a bit in the, in the future sessions. That's category one. Category two, or expression two, the Father's in Jesus. Okay, Jesus in the Father. What does that mean? Well, we'll look at, look at it a little bit. I don't know that much, but I know a little bit. But it doesn't end there. The third category is Jesus is in the believer. Like Jesus is in the Father, okay. He's in the Father and he's in, okay. And the fourth is the believers in Jesus. <laughs> so there's four different, I don't know, categories, expressions of how Father, Son, and believer, how there's mutual indwellings. And this is critical to understanding where these, the dynamic and the glory of these chapters are, these truths are taking us. And again, we'll look at those later, but I just wanted that you to identify and say, okay. And it's, it's mystical and mysterious, but some of it's practical and straightforward. Paragraph D, 
the fact that the Father lives in the Son and the Son lives in the Father, you know, those, these, this mutual indwelling of each other, it's not a do- in John 14, well, it's uh, several places in John. This isn't a doctrinal statement about Jesus' deity. It's a, do- it's a statement of his spirit-filled humanity. I mean, this is so striking and stunning, the apostles can't get it. He says, the Father's in me doing his works, and his words are in me as a man anointed with the spirits. What I'm telling you guys, they're going, whoa, what are you? No, 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 you're, yeah, we know you're a man, I, I, but what? Well, that's where you guys are going to go. I mean, Jesus has the ultimate measure of it beyond what any of us will walk in, but it's a lesser degree, but it's, it's that sort of thing. We enter into this mutual indwelling where Jesus is in us, we're in him. Jesus is the Father, the Father's in Jesus. We'll unpack that a bit, but I just wanted this on your mind, kind of an alert. You're going, okay, okay, like after the session, and someone says, what are you talking about? I don't know, somebody's in somebody, and they're in the other person. I didn't really follow it. <laughs> so just be patient with yourself, because it, it is, if it, I mean, it's new to, to many people, and so it's like, I, I don't get it yet, and that's okay. I just, just note to self, we're gonna develop that. Paragraph E, just a little bit here, a little, not much. There's at least five aspects of these, this mutual indwelling. This mystical union of the Father and the Son. Their mind, their heart, their will, their words, their works are unified. In other words, they think, feel, speak, act, and decide in ways that are in deep unity with one another, but he's gonna do that to the church. Again, this is is almost inconceivable to the state of the church now, way down under a, a Laodicean spirit of dullness and compromise. Paragraph G. Jesus invited his people. He goes, I want you to participate in this. Again, their eyes are like just, you know, deer in the headlights. They are not getting almost anything that he's saying, in my opinion. They're so filled with grief that he's going to die. They're going like, what now? (laughs) He's saying, I want to invite you to participate in this with me and the Father and the Spirit. And it will have such an impact on you that you'll have joy even in the crisis and you won't fall away. You won't be captured and overtaken by the negative circumstances of not just the despair of difficulty, but even the intensified temptations and sin in the culture. You won't be swept away by it. Here's how, I'm gonna tell you the, my little uh, I call it my little secret. It's not much of a secret, but I've done this for many years. I mean, maybe 40 years. This one little thing I do with God. When I read a truth about how the Father relates to the Son or how what he promises to give to us, the way he loves us, I do this simple thing. And I've never improved on it in 40 years. I've added some stuff to it. I say, I read that truth and I go, thank you. Show me more. It's so simple. It's not much of a secret, is it? Anyway, but for 40 years, I'll read it. It says, and the Father loves the Son. I go, thank you, Father, that you love the Son. Show me more. And if you say thank you, show me more. And we're going to really unpack that a bunch of times. In lots of, lots of different verses, you say that, all of a sudden, that passage will grow a little bit in your understanding. Not every time. <laughs> 
You'll say, thank you, show me more. And then you'll say another phrase. You'll go, oh, that was a, yeah, that's true. The Holy Spirit will actually be inspiring flashes of, of thoughts and understanding right into you. But if you read these passages, these glorious passages, and you underline them, and you go, ooh, awesome, and move on, that's, that's not bad. But if you actually turn it into conversation, and I, that's what I always say, I just, I just the simple thank you, show me more. And then I say some more phrases that come after that, but those are my two core phrases. Well, let's look at this mutual indwelling. Just ever so fast. This is just a little down payment. Paragraph H. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father fully enjoys and engages with the Son and the Spirit. They fully enjoy and engage with each other. Jesus has enthusiasm in his relationship with the Lord. Jesus is moved in loving the Father, and he's moved by being loved by the Father. The love is never mechanical. It's not disinterested. It's not bored. It's not distant. My point is, and I could give 20 more little phrases like that, and we're going to give more. Jesus is saying, this is how I relate to you. I'm not bored in my relationship with you. You might be bored with me. I'm not bored with you. I'm as enthusiastic relating to you as I am relating to the Father because this is who I am. And I am in the Father, the Father's in me, but I'm in you and you're in me. I'm bringing you into it. You just haven't caught up yet. I mean, there's many implications to this. When we see how they interact with each other than how they interact with us, then we're here going, what? The Lord says, think of the implications of the God of heaven enjoying and fully engaging with me. <laughs> like, why would you engage? Why would you have enthusiasm to do this? Because that's who I am and I never change. This is the plan. Paragraph I. Paragraph J. I said, boy, I'm very repetitive here. <laughs> oh, John 15, 7, that, that, that's a key one. Well, there's like 25 really key verses in, in these. But Jesus in John 15, 7, he, he says, uh, my words, when they're in your heart. Oh, that means so much. That much more than memorizing a few Bible verses. When my words, when the conversation of what I'm saying and the written word and the living word when by the Spirit and by the Word, it's in your heart, and what you're saying is agreement, and we're in this interaction together, many things will take place in that context. Paragraph K, Hosea told us that when we return to the Lord, this is, again, this is this simple little secret, say thank you, show me more, it's the same thing like this. When you return to God, Hosea said, bring words with you. This is the key right here. Bring words. Don't return to God and just say, that's okay to do some of that. I do a bit of that. But actually say words. What are the words we say? Well, the Bible's filled with them. Oh, I never thought of using those words. We're gonna break this down over time to give you practical things to say and bring to him. Top of page four. Jesus is actually paralleling what Moses said. 
And what Hosea said about bringing words when Jesus said, if my words abide in you. And I don't have that down to the middle page four here, but the, the actual passage, but we'll cover it many times. Look at Deuteronomy 30. Moses said this 1,500 years before Jesus. He goes, he had just given them the command to love God. And he said, don't say, verse 11, the command to love God's too mysterious. Like, I can't understand. Like, I get asked all the time. I don't know. How do you have passion for Jesus? How do you love God? It's so hard to understand. Moses said, no, no, it's not too mysterious. It's not complicated. Don't say, verse 11, it's far off. It's outside of my ability. I don't, you know, I'm a weak and broken people. I have ADD and six other things. I, I can't read the Bible. I can't. I can't. I won't. I shan't. I could. Blah, blah, blah. No. It's not out of reach. Actually, it isn't. I hear that all the time. You know, I don't have the attention span. I can't. And, and my point isn't that I don't want to have empathy. My point is I don't want you to lose your inheritance. It's not out of reach. Verse 12. It's not in heaven. Well, if I have one of those prophet open vision encounters and go to heaven and get in a chariot, maybe it'll help me out. Moses says, you don't need a heavenly encounter. Well, it's beyond the sea. If I could finally get on a, the money, get a plane to that revival center far away and have them lay hands and maybe I'd get slain in the spirit, I'd come back different. Nope, you don't have to cross the sea either. Verse 14, he goes, here's the key. The key to loving God, the power. It's near you. It's in your mouth. Say what God says, and your heart will get ignited over time. Just start saying what he says. And you'll walk in it. Now, I'm okay coming up getting prayed for, getting slain in the spirit, whatever. I mean, all that heavenly encounters, that's cool, but get it in your mouth. Get into the conversation. It starts with words. Paragraph M. This whole Trinitarian conversation, foundational to it is words. We have to say words. Our problem is we don't know what words to say or where to start, and that's some of what we're going to be doing in these classes, giving some practical handles, some beginning steps forward. Jesus' words, they have super, a supernatural dimension to them. His words they're spirit and life. They're different than our words. But when we say his words, they still have a quality of spirit and life. They're still, it's living and active. It's like, well, it doesn't feel like it's living and active. Just start saying it, and over time, your heart will start moving in a different direction. You get his words in your mouth. His words are spirit and life, and they're living and active. They have a power dimension to them that you might not feel the moment, but you stay with it for some months saying what he says and getting in that conversation, your heart is going to shift. Simple phrases at the very end of him, spoken to God will impact our emotions. Well, here, paragraph O, I finally got to John 15. He says, if my words abide in you, and not just if you memorize them and you say it once or twice, if my words, the written word and the living words, if and that they're living in you, and you're taught, they're, they come from me, but they're coming out of your mouth back to me. They're still my words, and they're in you. Your prayer life will have a new dimension of power to it. There'll, there'll be all kinds of power dem demonstrations that will happen in God's timing. 
Okay, let's go do these just real quick, these one, two, three, four, five. These are little simple takeaways. Ask the Holy Spirit often. I love this. I go, Holy Spirit, help me to engage in the Trinitarian conversation. Help me. I don't know what to say. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm just waiting for you to ask me. I know what you need to say. I can give it to you. I mean, they're all Bible verses, but I'll highlight them to you, tailor-made for your personality, the ones that will really touch you. Ask me to help you, and don't ask me once. Ask me regularly. Paragraph two, I like to speak in conversation with God in short little sound bites of 10 or 20 seconds, two and three minutes, meaning you don't need to be an hour straight every time, just when you're going to your car, driving home. I like to drive home after the meeting or here and just say the Holy Spirit. I say, Father, I thank you for the way you love Jesus. Show me more. Jesus, I thank you the way you love me. Show me more. I just little whisper, little statements. I don't know what to say to you. Teach me how to talk to you. Holy Spirit says, show me more. So, I mean, I say the Holy Spirit. Little, don't make it one and two hour increments or nothing I mean, have some of those here and there, but little short ones. If at first it's challenging, it will be. Then just get more familiar with the language. Say it more often. I mean, let some months go by, and your heart will start getting in sync with it. Someone goes, where do I start? Number four, just start saying Bible verses back to God. I don't mean just random, rapid-fire Bible verses, but... A truth will touch you. Thank you. Show me more, Lord. Just start saying it. Don't, don't wait until you get it all. Just start tonight. And you'll learn as you just start talking. Matter of fact, that's the way a child learns to speak in their home. You know, they're one to your own. And then they don't ever stop. And anyway, it just goes on and on. No, I'm just having fun. But my point is, at first it's, you know, mommy, I remember our, our son, Luke. How old was he? The Jesus Bible, two, 18 months, two years. I came to him. I was spending, I was with him in the afternoon. He goes, Jesus, Bible. I go, oh, man, I got it. It's got to be DNA, man. This is Jesus Bible. I said, my son is saying Jesus Bible. Diane says, get off your high horse. He's saying juice and bottle. I went, ah. Oh. He went, tell the kid to get it clear, man. <laughs> I go, really? She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't know anything about what you're talking about. <laughs> True story. Get that kid some English lessons. I didn't really say that. Paragraph P. I'm gonna give you my final exhortation here. Just real quick, just bullet point. And I'm, in other words, I'm leaving you with this. Don't get in a hurry and don't give up on these five chapters is really what I'm saying here. When I think of the intimacy process, whatever, that's a strange phrase. I think of five aspects or five parts of this process of growing in intimacy. I don't have the precise language. They overlap and flow together. But it starts by knowing, by intellectual knowledge is the point. In other words, take time to study this. Here's how I have found it, my experience. It starts by knowledge. I, I 
work hard to, oh, you know the truth. I understand it cognitively. Then after I understand it, I mean, a little bit of understanding, not a lot. Then I get it into conversation. Then, then I start saying it to God. Then when I start saying it to God, after conversation is illumination, it starts growing my understanding. I go, oh, it means more than what I thought. Then after illumination, I get inspired or motivated to go, I've, I've got new zeal now. I got new emotions and I'm, I'm motivated or inspired. And then that's where transformation takes place. The transformation of your emotions and your mindset. So I start by going, I want to learn it. If I learn it in my head a little bit, not perfectly, I get it in my mouth. If I get it in my mouth to God, not just to people, but to God, then it grows in understanding, illumination. Then I started getting more inspired. Then I'm feeling it, and then that feeling leads to transformed emotions and mindsets and all kinds of things. So in essence, paragraph Q, avoid the common error. If so many are making this common error. Worship team, come on up. To try to live the Christian life without Christ. So there's so many experts that are teaching people the Christian life and discipleship and training and leadership without Christ. When I mean without Christ, I mean they're born again, but they don't live. They're not intentional about keeping a conversation with him. That's what I mean without Christ. I don't mean they're not born again. We can't excel in this without conversation with him. Some experts in Christian community and ministry, they'll tell you how to do it, but without actually growing closer in the conversation with the Lord. And what it ends up happening is we're just striving in our human effort. Do you know how you see striving to love God? I tell people, don't try harder to love God. Spend time seeing more clearly. Don't try harder, see more clearly. If you'll get into the conversation, then the conversation will lead to inspiration. The inspiration will lead to transformation. Just start talking more to him, and you will be able to see striving of just counting on your own efforts to make this thing work. Amen and amen. We're just at the beginning of the beginning of a glorious journey. Let's stand before the Lord. It's going to take some effort to, to go here. So please, between now and next Friday, work a little bit more. I mean, put some time on this going, I think I get what you're saying. Everything I said in these documents, it's not always that clear, but work on it and see, and we'll get it clearer as we go. Father, here we are before you. Father, thank you that you love Jesus. Show me more. I just want a heart that is fully in love. Jesus, thank you that you enjoy and fully engage with the Father. Show me more. I just want a heart that is fully in love. Holy Spirit, teach me how to talk to you. Show me more. little phrases that work with who I am before you. We all have different phrases. Oh, I just want a heart that is full. 
help me study this and let me discover some little flashes of insight here and there. Spirit of wisdom and revelation come. Spirit of wisdom and revelation come. Spirit of wisdom and revelation.
situations. I just need prayer tonight. Even in the midst of this, we'll have these kind of moments, and so in days sometimes. So any of you that want prayer, you just feel a spirit of heaviness is coming down on your mind or your heart, and you can't shake it loose. Say, I need the saints to pray with me. So I want to do all these things you're saying, but I need some prayer tonight. Go ahead and come stand up with these lines. We're going to pray and sing over you. or 30 of you in the room to come on up and pray for folks. Yeah, just stand on the two lines. Yeah, just not too close to them. Yeah, we have the lines on the carpet just to designate where to stand. Yeah. Anyone in the room that wants to pray for folks, come and we're going to ask for the Spirit to come and rest on In Jesus' name, we take authority over the spirit of heaviness. Spirit of torment. Just that anxiety that weighs the stomach down. I take authority over it. Oppressive thoughts. Dark thoughts. Sleeplessness at night. Dark thoughts. Right now, in their mind and heart tonight. Just a spirit of power come on them tonight. We rebuke the spirit of heaviness. We rebuke the spirit of heaviness. We release the spirit of liberty on your mind and heart.